life. It's time for Sex Talk with Lou. Lou Paget on Toginet. So, have you ever wondered if you're normal or why you feel distant from your partner? Why they keep doing that? Want to recreate a truly connected relationship? Or wondered, how do I tell my partner or kids about things? Then this is your chance to be a fly on the wall and learn about one of the most important parts of our health, our sexual health. Lou Paget is a certified sex educator, an international best-selling author. And not only will Lou and her guests discuss the most current research, they will put you at the head of the class on good, solid, scientifically-based information and how it will impact you and your family. Known for delivering information about sexuality and relationships, sans the sleaze factor while retaining all the accuracy, fun, and the you're kidding factor. Let's get to it. Sex Talk with Lou on Toginet. And now, here's your host, Lou Paget. Welcome, everyone, and uh, thank you for being with me on today's show. One, and you know, in my intro, I talk about the sexual health and For me, I see so many things that impact our sexual health, whether it is, you know, an attitude, whether it is a behavior, whether it is the food we're eating. And one of the things I often find is that people are so not aware of how many things that they might be doing on a daily basis can be impacting their actual sexual health and their sexual functioning. Now, each person, you know, will have their own definition of what sexual health is. And I found a fabulous article that I, you know, just, I was reading it today and I think I'm going to start with that because the individual who wrote it is a gentleman, he is a um, therapist by the name of Matthias Kennington and he has a practice in Texas. And I was looking at, you know, some of the things, sex in the news, what's going on. And I looked at, you know, I remember, uh, I guess it was a week or two ago, I was speaking about the uh, Ozzy um, Osbourne and people saying, oh, well, you know, he's in treatment for sex addiction. And so I did quite a bit of information on that show and talked about it. And again, you know, it's coming back up again, where Elizabeth Smart, she's the young woman who was abducted from her home in Utah and held by this so-called self-proclaimed preacher and his wife. Uh, His wife's name, I believe, was Wanda Barzi, and I'm drawing a blank on his name. But let's be completely honest. This guy is a sick dude to begin with. You know, he abducts, you know, a 14-year-old girl, you know, constantly rapes her. And what her comment was is, you know, that his porn addiction. Well, there is no such thing. First off, porn is not a drug. So if you're going to have an addiction, there needs to be, it needs to be associated with a drug. In the same way, sex is not a drug. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go over this article and then I'm going to talk about some other things that may be derailing uh, your own sexual health or a partner's sexual health, or it may not have even occurred to you that this could be something. So this is the article. It's entitled, The Case for Sexual Health. And it starts with, there's no evidence 
to suggest that you can treat sex like a drug. There's no scientific evidence that can prove there's an, there's an amount of sex that will be unhealthy for a person. There's also no evidence to show that consensual sexual behavior between adults is universally sick. Really, despite our efforts to pathologize normal behavior, we can't seem to find a way to make illness stick. Now, I'm going to tell you one of the things that often happens is when someone will go to one of the three places they typically go when they have an issue relative to sexuality, they'll go to someone of faith, They'll go to someone who's a physician or they'll go to someone who's a therapist. And I can assure you that the majority of those three do not get good general sexual health, sexual health pleasure information in their training. They simply don't. And so what happens is they have to refer back. I feel like a broken record when I talk about this. But they have to refer back to their own experiences what they do themselves, and the last thing they're going to do is talk about what they do. So they then brush things aside or they pathologize. Let's say someone is, they're in a a 24-7 BDSM, bondage, dominance, sadomasochism relationship, and it's uh, totally consensual, it's safe, they are, no one's under duress or influence, and yet what will happen often is the physician or the therapist will say that that's the issue when that never was the issue. There's something else going on. Maybe the person's being a little too um, jealous or they're trying to be a little more controlling, which is funny in a BDSM world. But there's different things that are relationship issues. They're not sexuality issues. So going back to even though, you know, there's been, you know, despite the efforts to pathologize normal sexual behavior, we can't seem to find a way to make illness stick. Now, many have tried. Some researchers recently tried to connect what they call sex addiction or hypersexuality to a scientific theory called incentive sensitization theory, IST. And this is what IST is about. IST researchers argue that reported Repeated, pardon me, exposure to a drug makes it impossible for addicts to regulate their need for the drug. So they keep coming back to it. The theory, if true, explains why people crave alcohol and drugs at rates they can't control. Now, if you had heard my previous show, you would know that when I cited an article by uh, Ruth Kahn, and she did this article in um, the College of sexual and relationship therapists, and it's in uh, Sex and Relationship Therapy, a publication that you can find online um, by Routledge. Anyway, her comment is, she's a therapist, she looks at does sex addiction exist? Now, here's the things that need to be around in order for an addictive disease to, to occur. There has to be tolerance, meaning that over time, more of the substance is required to get the same result. Withdrawal, meaning that a distressing physiological reaction accompanies discontinuing the use of it, which makes stopping difficult and painful. And that addiction is also, it's progressive, it's chronic, and fatal. In other words, it gets worse over time and is incurable. So what we see is that most compulsive sexual behavior simply doesn't fit that criteria. So heading back to... 
Kennington, and the Kennington is spelled K-E-N-N-I-N-G-T-O-N, and again, in uh, Texas in a 512 area code. So the trying to connect the incentive sensitization, they argued that the repeated exposure to the drug makes it impossible for addicts to regulate their need for the drug. Okay, I get that with the drug. So they keep coming back to it. That theory, if true, explains why some people crave alcohol and drugs at rates they can't control. Got it. Now, he uses the example of imagine if you placed two glasses of water in front of you and asked you to drink both of them. He's in Texas, so he says it's crazy hot there. And the first one goes down very smoothly. It's it's so refreshing. The second one tastes disgusting and hurts your stomach the moment of your first gulp. Well, it's, it's only then that you would be told that the first glass is from clear spring water from a local well, and the other glass was from a bottle of ocean water that he brought back from a recent trip to the Bahamas. So what's his point with this? That just because one thing looks like the other doesn't mean they're the same. So just because the brain's pleasure centers are activated when one has sex doesn't mean that sex is equal to cocaine. Which, by the way, when I start into the other things that are impacting your sexual health, the um, drug addiction issue that we have in this country is out of frickin' control. There was a great Facebook uh, posting of a doctor, but I'll, I'll talk about that when I talk about my next segment. But it is the number of opiates and things that people are getting is identical to heroin and as addictive. So, anyways, to go to IST and their uh, the theory of IST is that that it's based on consumption of a foreign substance entering the body. Our bodies don't naturally produce cocaine. They don't naturally produce alcohol or heroin. So proponents of sex addiction argue that, like drug addiction, sex addicts crave more and more compulsive, dangerous sex, whatever that means, because they too have become desensitized to sexual behaviors, making their brains unable to regulate their need for the pleasure they receive from sex. There's just one problem with that. Sex isn't a drug. Now, as he says, don't get me wrong, sex is intoxicating, even motivating, but is it reasonable to argue that the brain can't regulate sex craving when there's no foreign substance to impair how it works? There's no doubt that many people have trouble making healthy sexual choices or healthy choices, period. I mean, one only has to look at what Ryan Lochte just did. He just lost his sponsors. He lost uh, having Ralph Lauren. He lost Speedo. And, you know, he's now going to be known as, you know, the guy who didn't tell the truth at the Olympics. And what was involved with that? Alcohol. And he says that. So sometimes people just don't make healthy behavioral choices. Now, the fact that people have trouble making healthy sexual choices, that's not the debate. The debate is, what causes people to make choices they believe are unhealthy? Why do people make poor health choices when it comes to sex? Are they actually behaving in unhealthy ways? Should they be shamed for sexual behavior because it makes someone else uncomfortable? Maybe one of those therapists or the physician. Is there a problem? Is it evidence of sex addiction epidemic or is it something more complex? And this is a real point that he makes. Addiction and illness 
only exist as a counterpoint. In other words, in order to define something as illness, you have to know what health looks like. We're coming up to my first break. Any questions you might have, you can find me on my, uh, my site, my website, loopadget.com, or you can send me uh, an email. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me, office at loopadget.com. And we're going to continue with this terrific article when I come back because there is no way to show that this, there's a counterpoint to what we're talking about. Here come the twos. Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Padgett. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. Welcome to TogiNet, radio with a cutting edge. This is the TogiNet Radio Network, radio with a cutting edge. Residents of Alligator Point, Florida, discovered a 400-pound Gabberlunzi bear raiding their garbage. They called the local wildlife authorities. The officers came out and shot the bear with a tranquilizer dart in order to move him. Unexpectedly, the frightened bear swam out into the water where it started to drown as the tranquilizer began taking effect. Adam Warwick, an officer from the Wildlife Commission, jumped into action, swimming towards a juggernaut bear, while the other officers tried to figure out how to rescue both of them. Adam was somehow able to grab the bear and paddle 25 yards to the shore, saving the bear's life. The bear was then loaded on a truck and transported back to its home in the forest. What's the word for a last-minute attempt to get something done? A charrette. It's Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. So the, what I'm doing right now is I'm actually reading from a blog by a uh, therapist by the name of Matthias Kennington. And it's talking about, which this is one of the most straightforward uh, descriptions that I've seen in a long time, basically pointing out to people that the, the use of the term sexual addiction is not applicable, but in a way that, because the, the point that I made just before the break is that addiction and illness only exist as a counterpoint, meaning you can only say they exist here if you have something specific to compare them to. So in other words, to define something as an illness we have to know what health looks like. So we know that when a cell has cancer, that being the verb of it, because we know how a healthy cell functions. So when cancer is around, you're going to have um, uh, angiogenesis, you're going to have development of blood vessels that start starving up other things. They want sugar, 
So they are fed by sugar. They take up sugar like it was 11 times more um, voraciously than a normal cell. They grow out of control. But the big thing that they have, the big thing that they normal healthy cells have that cancer cells don't have, they don't have an off switch. So that's why it keeps growing. So that's why when you can get something into cancer in a food way, in um, and believe me, the majority of the cancer so-called therapies that they're using, whether it's chemo, whether it's radiation, or whether it's surgically, they don't work. They simply freaking don't work. They work for a period of time until they can say, oh, we got the bump out. But that's not what the real issue is. The issue is there's something else that's causing that. So we're going to go talk about that in a bit as well. Now, anyway, so so we know what a healthy cell functions like, right? So if we can measure diabetes and generalize it to a large group of people, because we know how much insulin the pancreas should produce. We see broken bones, and we know they shouldn't look like that. So most proponents of sex addiction define sexual health by its absence, okay? So you can't have too much sex. You can't view sexually explicit materials for too long or too often. That was what Elizabeth Smart said made her living hell even worse, was the porn-watching behavior of her abductor. And you can't feel conflicted or confused about your sexual behavior. Many people do. Many people will find if they have a something that is a turn-on for them, they'll go, oh, my God, there must be something wrong with me that I like that. Well, no. It, it, something that turns you on is not necessarily bad. It's what you do with your reaction to that. But no, very rarely do people have anyone to talk about things that they find confusing or they find you know, I watched this particular thing and it really turned me on, but I think that's really that bad of me. Well, that may be a message you got at age five that you downloaded that you don't even know is in your subconscious. And then another thing, you can't have sex to manage stress or anxiety. Uh, I would recommend that anyone who talks about that should look at the benefits of sex and of having another person and a body around you. We know touch therapy works beautifully. We also know that the soothing behavior of being with another person, that having yourself be validated. So, you know, and some people have makeup sex. I, you know, it's up to them. But so let's look at what is the closest universally accepted definition of sexual health. And it comes from the World Health Organization. And one of the people who has worked with the WHO on the definition of sexual health is Dr. Eli Coleman. And he and I are on the National uh, Leadership Council, Program of Human Sexuality at University of Minnesota. And I'm the leadership, I'm the national leadership chair. And Dr. Coleman is my source for information in the area of sexual compulsivity and sexual impulsivity. And he himself says they're, you know, the WHO, and, you know, they're arguably the world's authority on human health, cites none of the sex addiction pathologies in their definition of sexual health. To the contrary, they base health on principles of consent, mutual pleasure, education, and autonomy, among other things. And so sexual health, what your sexual health is, changes according to the context in which we live. So for some people, 
let's say you're a young Afghani girl, your concept of sexual health would probably be not even having a conversation about it or having your mother tell you something and, and then culture you, you're going to be told something. For any of you, speaking of young Afghani um, uh, women, the pardon, she was in the Pakistan uh, Swat Valley. The young woman, Malala, who won the Nobel Peace Prize at 17, she literally said her fear was she did not want to end up like the other girls in the Swat Valley, meaning they were going to get married very young and start having children. She wanted to continue her education. That's why she started blogging about, you know, that children should be allowed to have their education, and her father was a teacher and supported her. So she had a very different world of what her education was. But here's, here's the thing. He makes a great point, that your sexual health changes according to the context in which you live. So our institutions, countries, faith communities, and our families define sexual health in, in very abstract and diverse ways. For obvious reasons, it's difficult to know what sex is healthy given the overwhelming fear that we have about sexual conversations, not just with our partners and spouses, but with our children, friends, and families. So if pleasure is good, if so, how much? Now, these are conversations we must have to define sexual health. What if you and your partner agree about what is sexually healthy? And then this just starts with the, jaming, the shaming and the judgment that comes along with many times people saying, oh, you're a sex addict because you want to have more sex than I do or you want to look at something. And it's someone who's not trained in the area of therapy or something or in the area of sexual behavior that is often telling someone that they're an addict. So, again, most of the time, this conflict is the beginning of our fears about sex addiction. Our culture makes people who like to have a lot of sex feel like there's something wrong with them because they might be different from their partners or because their fantasies are different from ours. So, we tell them to keep it quiet, right? Keep a lid on it. Or we pathologize those behaviors. Now, let's, let us not forget that it was an illness to be gay until 1973. Now, take that back to, you know, uh, Rome, where it was a given that many of the soldiers had uh, young men who they had relationships with, that this was, you know, you had a wife in order to have children. But there's this, you know, homosexuality. And anyone who says it's not natural, let me tell you, I have a book called The Biodiversity of Sexuality. And there are storks, elephants, sheep, fish, reptiles, mammals, birds, you name it, all of whom exhibit same-sex attraction and sexual behaviors. So, and what do animals know from not being natural? They just, they know what they are going to do. So, Again, going back to, it wasn't until 1973 that being gay was removed from being an illness in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual. Now, an anal sex actually can still land you in prison in 12 states. And I actually knew of an individual. Now, this was, gosh, 25 years ago. But he and his wife, uh, this person knew them. He and his wife were in a contentious divorce 
he uh, she invited him over, and he she said she wanted to you know um, have sex, so she wanted him to uh, do oral sex on her. So he did that. He went down on her, and then guess what happened? He got hauled into court, and he ended up being jailed for that sexual activity with his wife because she knew that's what would happen. Now, highly manipulative and unhealthy on her part, no kidding. So, but so when we talk about the things where people don't talk about things and they can't define what the actual health thing is, it's no wonder people hide their sexual behaviors. And what stays hidden remains feared. And what is feared is unhealthy, evil, or dirty. So, our society relies on counterpoint to define problematic behavior. You know, black, white, night, day, hot, cold, health, and disease. But without a clear sexual health definition, sexual addiction is a counterpoint to nothing, which makes it very hard to disprove. It's a term that got created by media. They loved it. Let's jump on two words that cause a lot of people to go, woo-hoo, it's called sex and it's called addiction. In the same way that we have drugs that are being created to try and convince people they have something. Have you ever heard of, I think it's called the first-year syndrome for med students? They literally get all of the diseases that they're studying in the first year. That is how powerful your thoughts are. So if we know that there is a very difficult way to disprove it, how are we supposed to have realistic conversations about illness when we can't even agree on health? So what do we know about sexual health problems? Well, there's no scientific agreement on whether sexual compulsivity, sex addiction, and hypersexuality exist as illnesses. The most recent attempt to define them as such is when a group of sex addiction proponents tried to classify hypersexuality in the DSM, and that's the Bible of Mental Illness, and the way that you can be able to bill for something. It failed because there wasn't enough evidence to to suggest there's such a thing. Now, there's a ton of evidence to, to suggest that what is sexually acceptable is greatly influenced by our society. Our morals, beliefs, and disgust tend to predict what is sexually healthy. There's also evidence that sexuality is too diverse to create a single classification. Like, no kidding, it is too diverse. So, in other words, what is sexual health in the United States may be different from sexual health in Kenya. And sexual health in Texas might be different than sexual health in New York. And sexual health in your family may be different than sexual health in mine. Now, sounds right. Sounds, that sounds fine, right? Well, live and let live. Now, we're coming up to the second break, and then I will finish this discussion, then we'll go on to some other products and things that may be impacting your sexual health and your sexual function. So, again, any questions, you can find me on my website, loopadget.com, or send an email, office at loopadget.com, and we will be back after these tunes. This is 
Sex Talk with Lou on Toginet. With your host, Lou Paget. techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on Toginet.com. February is National Chocolate Month. Historians say the Aztecs discovered chocolate 3,100 years ago, and it was revered to the point of worship. The word chocolate comes from the Aztec word chocolatl, which referred to the bitter, spicy drink the Aztecs made from the cacao beans. The first chocolate bar was invented in 1847 by Joseph Fry. Did you know that it takes one year for a cacao tree to produce enough pods to make 10 chocolate bars? The scientific name for the tree that chocolate comes from, Theobroma cacao, means food of the gods. Man cannot live by chocolate alone, but we women sure can. Personally, I could give up chocolate, but I'm not a quitter. It's marching Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. A common misconception when it comes to exercise is that you have to do the whole workout, otherwise, it's not worth doing at all. That is untrue. One of the most positive things about exercise is that it's not all or nothing. If you find yourself swamped and you do not have an hour to devote to daily exercise, don't worry. Every little bit counts. So if you don't have time one day to do your normal full workout, it's okay to do an abbreviated routine every once in a while. Squeeze in anything you can. It all adds up. If you only have 30 minutes, lift weights for 10 minutes, then take a brisk walk or challenging run for the remaining 20 minutes. Sometimes all you can manage to do is fit in 15 minutes of abdominal exercises. That is definitely better than doing nothing. Do what you can and reap the benefits. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Like us on Facebook at Fitness Minute with Annette Hammond. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Before the break, I was talking about the, uh, this article by Matthias Kennington. And, and to me, it is one of the best that I've seen in a long time. And he is a couples therapist in marriage counseling, and he actually happens to be in Austin. So, and he's talking about the case for sexual health. So just before the break, I talked about, okay, so what is sexual health in Texas? Uh, ergo, Austin, Texas, might be different than sexual health in New York, and sexual health in your family might be different than sexual health in mine. So that sounds fine, right? Live and let live, but not so fast. Sexuality educator and psychologist Dr. David Lay, and that spells L-E-Y, makes a strong argument that we don't treat sex like other pleasure-seeking activities. If I told you that, in this is in the article, if I told you that in my family we work out 12 times a week, you might be surprised, but you probably wouldn't feel morally compelled to stop us from our love of elliptical machines. If, however, he told you that he and his wife regularly attend BDSM parties, 
you might rush me to local rehab or synagogue. Now, that's one of the things that will often happen for someone who is younger and they, you know, are coming out as gay. They get shoved into something ridiculous like reparative therapy, which is neither therapy nor is it reparative. As a matter of fact, it's highly damaging. And, you know, so they might send you off to, you know, rehab or synagogue. And the fact that he feels compelled to clarify that he and his wife don't attend BDSM parties reflects the fear of moral judgment that is so prevalent in our society when it comes to sex. So, as he says, consider this my coming out as a clinician who refuses to support the existence of a disorder that is built on unclear moral arguments and pseudoscience. It's like those people who say, um, I can't really define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Oh, really? What color of glasses were you wearing? Or were you? So morality is important, and, and there is a place for it in sexual health discussion. We all have morals. Because of that, we must critically examine how those morals influence our ideas about health and illness. And if you're reading this as this blog as a clinician, then you must be willing to let the, these, those morals be influenced by evidence that exists as a counterpoint to what you believe about sexual health. And I agree with him so clearly on this. I strongly support helping women, men, and gender nonconforming persons ground their sexuality within a framework of sexual health. And that's one of the things that I do on the National uh, Leadership Council. We look to fundraise in order to, to develop chairs to create good, solid science and um, within the areas of sexuality. That's why Doug Braun Harvey's chair in sexual compulsivity has been, his, the fellowship has been so important, so, and that it fits within their worldviews. So ground their sexuality within that and within their worldviews. So I totally agree with him in, you know, believing to eradicating shame and promoting congruence in both personal and relationship values. And it's time to remove pathological judgments and give people something that can actually help them align their values with their behaviors. And running around in shame circles trying to control a high sex libido with surgical abstinence will only make things worse. Here, here, Dr. Matthias Kennington, 512-329-5540. Now, he also lists some other sexual resources, the Harvey Institute, Doug Braun Harvey, and Dr. Lay's books, um, L-E-Y. So um, this to me is like one of the best blogs that I've seen on this in a long time. Well, in addition to Ruth Kahn's ad, uh, pardon me, article, with, which was in the, um, uh, the John, published by John Hopkins University, downloaded, but it was in uh, the, she's independent practice. Uh, it's Routledge Sexual and Relationship Therapy. So, Let's, let's go on to the next section of this show, which is what are the things that are influencing or getting in the way of your sexual health or your sexual pleasure, things that could be a things that are impacting it. And what had me look at this was an article that I happened to have read. I think it's AARP. Yeah, the AARP Bulletin. And... It's talking about that 46 Americans die 
every day from taking from painkiller overdoses. Now, this is not, I mean, that for me is like when I, and, and what happened is there's a friend of mine, a colleague, whose unbelievably fabulous young nephew just died of a drug overdose in Florida. And to say that that pain was there, uh, I mean, we only have to look at, you know, Heath Ledger. This is a guy, you know, these things are lethal. I talked briefly just before on, there's a great post today on Facebook of a young girl getting her arm set. She's, you know, obviously broken her arm in something and her arm's in a cast and the doctor says, well, I'm going to write you a script for, I think he said ibuprofen, take down the swelling. And what the mother says, well, don't you think she needs something a little stronger than that? And he said, actually, no. And then he shows this one little piece of paper, and on it it says heroin. And one of the things that has happened is the people are getting these opiate medications, um, OxyContin may be one that most people are, are familiar with, but literally these function to, so morphine, oxycodone, hydrocodone are the most common of the opioid pain prescription meds. And again, every day 46 Americans die from using it, and the reason is because they have started prescribing it so massively. And by the way, the group that's got the highest death rate for the overdose is 45 to 54-year-old age range, and that is four times higher than for teenagers and young adults. Now, the reason I bring this up is I'm also reading in this article that they they estimate, and I wonder who's doing the estimating aside from pharma, our good friends, that that, that an estimated 100 million Americans are... are you know are are dealing with uh chronic pain now one hundred million there's three hundred and approximately nineteen million Americans in you know population in this country they're saying that one third of the population is living with chronic pain seriously from what well I'll tell you what from for a lot of them. The reason you you need to be looking at this in a really honest way, what is pain but your body giving you another message? So these people are popping a pill when they don't they should be doing something to look at your body's telling you something's wrong. Inflammation is there. Now, the thing about these uh prescriptions is how highly addictive they are and it starts off with a woman talking about she had chronic back pain and she was given some pills, but within seven months she was taking 280 milligrams a day. Now, that's the equivalent of 56 Percocets. And the doctor then, you know, balked at refilling her prescription and she said she discovered what heroin addicts go through. And she had been told, she said, if I'd been told that this is how addictive these medications are. She said, I never would have taken them. But what physicians also know, there's a psychiatrist, um, Andrew Kolodny, 
and he's the chief medical officer for Phoenix House, and his comment is that we know that people who take an opiate drug for three to six months are highly likely to still be taking it years later. That's, first off, you're not taking care of the pain, so you're not, your body's not getting any healthier, but what you're doing is you're just masking it. And there really isn't a magic bullet for pain. So when I looked at this, and then I looked at, well, just about everyone knows that when you start taking medication, and you're taking medication in combination with other things, I mean, we have one of the most medicated populations in the world. I mean, it's like the U.S. is what percentage of the world's population, and they consume some crazy amount, like 75% of medication. I, I, I mean, people are being told you need to take um, a blood thinner. You need to be taking something for cholesterol. Let me tell you, every single cell in your body needs cholesterol. So what they look at is they come out and they do, the drug companies will do a major push to try and tell someone, you need, we need to be giving, you know, they do campaigns. And over the span of in 96 to 2002, Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin, funded more than 20,000 educational programs for doctors and telling them that they, you know, promoting long-term use of opioids for chronic pain. Well, over, you know, the 15 years from when they started doing that, the drug that Tully, who is the woman at the beginning of the story, increased fivefold. So, you know, this is a crazy number when we come back. I'm coming up to the final break here. That if we know what the source of the pain is, we can take care of that. And for many people, there are reasons why there's infertility, that they lack desire, that their bodies don't respond, and often it is something environmental, often it's something pharmaceutical, it's the food that they're eating, it's the chemical exposure that they've been exposed to, and these are things that, oh my God, you can be in charge of. Don't just hand over your health and your sexual health to someone else and someone telling you there's something wrong. Don't listen to an ad saying you've got to come up and find, you know, an issue. Okay, we're coming up to the tunes. I'll be right back, and I'll give you some ideas to look at for your own sexual health. Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more Sex Talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. Radio Network presents the Diva Download with Tracy and Tasha. If you think Diva is all about attitude and drama, think again. The Diva Download is the premier online radio program where girls of all ages, shapes, sizes, and colors get together to redefine what it means to be a diva so that all girls can discover their inner diva and develop a healthy sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Being a true diva means you're diverse. 
first. Involved, value-driven, and active. That's today's diva. If you want to celebrate the girl in your life through education, encouragement, empowerment, and entertainment, join us every week on Tuesdays from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time and celebrate the essence of being a girl only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. Get a kick out of the warning labels companies attach to prevent lawsuits from the hooky crooky of this world. A warning label on a dishwasher cautioned not to put any person in the unit. Speaking of dishwashers, one product warning on a television remote control read, not dishwasher safe. That's too bad because we know how dirty the remote control gets. In fact, we press the buttons even harder when we know the battery is dead. What are we, part of the ridiculati? A warning on a baby stroller read, remove child before folding. Here's one for the blunderbusses and poppin' jays among us. A label on a letter opener read, safety goggles recommended. Call me snarky, but any society that needs this many disclaimers has too many lawyers, pedophagers, and snollygosters. It's Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So just before the break, I was talking about the impacts that medications and different things can have on your sexual health and your sexual function. And one of the things, one of the stats that for me was just absolutely alarming is that in this article written, um, it was a health writer in the AARP bulletin, estimates that 100 million Americans are dealing with chronic pain. Well, if they're dealing with chronic pain, there's something else going on that is of, I mean, that is epidemic proportion. One of the number one things that will lead to chronic pain and inflammation in your body is sugar, refined sugar. And if you are eating, and by the way, if you're having sodas, stop, stop immediately. If you are, I mean, you have no idea how many teaspoons of sugar are in those sodas. And when I see people drinking those big mug things of them, you know, that looks like the size of a horse head, I just know that things are not going to be going well in their body. Then we have, they're eating foods that have, that are, uh, you don't know where they come from. You don't know what type of um, herbicide or pesticide. Is it a Monsanto product? Is it Roundup Ready? Uh, Does it have glyphosate in it? Is it toxic with that? That's going to be impacting your gut as much as it impacts the gut of the bugs that glyphosate is designed to kill. And then they say, oh, glyphosate won't hurt you. Oh, yeah? Want to bet? So what that happens is you then often have constant gastric upset because your GI tract, which is where the majority of your immune system is developed and 
where food absorption occurs, that can't happen properly. It goes into your bloodstream, and then your body will mount an immune response because something leaks across a leaky gut. So whether it is, so your food is your drug, okay? So whatever it is you're putting in your body through your mouth, check it. I mean, it's difficult now to try and get food that is clean. I mean, if you go to a farmer's market, chances are you're going to be able to get clean food. You're going to be able to, so, you know, vegetarians, vegetables. But soy, it's like 97% of soy in this country is genetically modified. The same thing with corn. So thinking that you're getting, okay, if I avoid corn, well, if you are eating beef or any animal that is fed corn as their food source, do you not think that it's going to be within their tissues? Of course it is. So, I mean, it's really difficult now to try and find something that if you're getting processed foods, you're getting crap. Anything you buy in a box, anything you buy that has been, you know, anything that, it, you know, like, and anything you microwave, you might as well throw that food away for how effective and efficacious it will be for you as a food source you are killing all of the nutrients in it by using a microwave. In addition to which, we've got, let's say you are taking something pharmaceutical. We know what happens when people, again, talking about people who, if they stay on opiate drugs for what was the comment, if they stay on for, you know, five to six weeks, we know they're likely to, oh, what is it, three to six months, they're likely to still be on it years later. That same thing happens for many people when they're taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety um, uh, medications. They're taking them for way too long. So when they try to go off them, it's almost impossible to do so. But we also know that those medications severely impact people's libidos. So do oral birth control pills. We know that one as well. Another thing, let's say you've decided you know, you're someone who... You're okay having vaccines. If I'm asked that question, I'm Eric. There's absolutely no question in my mind. I will never in my rest of my life have another vaccine. They are some of the most toxic things you could put into your body. And here's why: the things that are used to to develop them in are the things that are so highly toxic. Would you inject antifreeze into your system? normally, like just put it into your muscle and inject it into you or in, inject it into your child, propylene glycol? Uh, not likely, right? Well, what happens is that if you are getting injected with that into your bloodstream, your body doesn't have a chance to filter it through its own system to get rid of the toxicity of it. It's right in your bloodstream. Boom, right there. One of the things that's happening now for some people, I look at this and I go, what else? I mean, we know that your food needs to be better. We know that if you are eating processed, manufactured food, fast food, you are getting crap, whether it's from the bread, the things that are in the bread. Um, was it azodibicarbonide? It's a product that's in bread that is highly toxic. You've got the... Uh, impact of environmentally. You have impact of bisphenol A. Now, that's a hormone interrupter, more so for 
males than for females, but it is a doozy. Now, the other thing, any chemical exposure that you might have had, whether it is to a, um, an herbicide or an insecticide. And when they, and people, if you're listening to someone who's telling you to be worried about the Zika virus, do your research, okay? Because you need to be an informed consumer. The Zika virus, the actual patent for it is owned by the Rockefeller Foundation. And it's been known that it's been around since 1947. What's also known about it is that it is something that for most people, it doesn't cause issues with, um, it doesn't cause the micro encephaly, uh, like the small heads. What they forgot to tell you is the areas in Brazil where these women were having these children, it wasn't the Zika virus that was the issue. It was the spraying of the insecticide and petrochemicals that were being done at the same time. And, you know, uh, there's things that if you look well enough, you can, you can take care of your health. You can take care of your sexual health. You can take care of the health of your family. But it's really important that you know where to look. If you think you're going to get accurate information from CDC, Center for Disease Control, and NIH, National Institutes of Health, you will not. They have been bought, sold, packaged down the road by pharma. And if you think going to Whole Foods is going to also be your place to get decent, good food, the brand of Whole Foods initially had that. And Austin, Texas, if I'm not mistaken, is like the, you know, one of the places where Whole Foods first got started. Well, unfortunately, Whole Foods has been sold out by the CEO. He is walking hand-in-hand with Monsanto and the others because he stopped the Vermont. He was part with Monsanto to stop Vermont having genetically modified GMO labeling on foods. Quite frankly, I think we all deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies. When people look at, if people look at what aspartame does in <clears throat> clinical situations, I mean, in GMO corn, as an example, within three generations in, you know, uh, uh, mammalian studies, you know, rats, whatever, within three generations, they're, they're sterile. That's, you know, that's the GMO corn. Seriously? And what's happening now with Merck's, product Gardasil and Cerverix, which is GlaxoSmithKline, that's the product that is being touted to help protect you from cervical cancer. It doesn't, by the way. The number one thing that will protect women from cervical cancer is screening. And that is from the chief investigator, Dr. Diane Harper, who has said there is nothing that is better than screening, meaning the pap smear. So what instead happened is a bunch of young women were being given Gardasil, and now the um, pediatricians are coming forward and saying, oh, my God, these girls are going through POF, premature ovarian failure, which in essence means they have been chemically sterilized by these medications. They've been put into premature ovarian failure. They're not ovulating. They've gone into menopause at age 18, at age 20. 
which means they have been robbed of the ability to have a family, to have a child, to create that part of their life. And the number one group of young women who get truly impacted, given what we've just watched the Olympics and all of these phenomenal athletes, the number one group of young women impacted by the severe adverse events from Cerverix, particularly in Europe, and Gardasil here in the U.S., are the highly, uh, like the national and world-class athletes. They are the young women who are being impacted with chronic illness, chronic inflammation, can't walk, um, unable to continue, bedridden for the rest of their lives. And I can't imagine why a company would not be held responsible for because they knew that it would do this. So I want all of you to be able to keep your health intact. Watch the foods that you're eating. If you're starting to have inflammation and upset, rather than buying a box of you know Tums or something, stop what you're eating. Get a natural anti-inflammatory. Get some get some raw turmeric root. Add it to your food. If you can't get it, get the powder. Get that is something that will help you more than you have any idea. Get the sugar out of your diet. Look at the medications you're taking. Do you really need to be taking them? If you're taking oral birth control, you might want to just go, mm, you know what, I think this is really impacting what's happening with my body and my libido. It may very well. And I want people to enjoy their bodies and enjoy their lives. I don't want them to be on constant pain meds. That's not good for anybody. So enjoy your next week. If you want to see Matthias Kennington, he's uh, the article's online. Have a fabulous rest of the week. for being a part of Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with host Lou Paget. Every week, this will be your chance to be a fly on the wall and learn about one of the most important parts of our health, our sexual health. Join Lou Paget 